And he ate nothing during those days, and when they had ended, he became hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. Okay. So Jesus uh, went into the wilderness. What caused him to do that? The Spirit. The Spirit. So that tells me that this temptation wasn't his fault. And a lot of times temptations are not our fault. There are times they are. Sometimes you're tempted because you put yourself in the wrong place at the wrong time and you knew, you knew better and you shouldn't have been there. But sometimes temptations just, I mean, they just happen. You know, you don't have to be doing anything wrong to be tempted to do wrong. God planned that Jesus would be fully human and endure temptation. So if Jesus is in the wilderness... What's what would, what's the point of him being in a wilderness? What what's the main thing about a wilderness? Deserted. Deserted. Yeah, kind of Jesus and Satan by themselves. It's kind of a one on one. It's a duel here. And uh, you know um, what was Jesus doing for the last forty days? Not eating. Fasting. And by the end of that time, how did he feel? Hungry. Yeah. That seems rather an understatement, don't you think? <laughs> you know, and after 40 days of my eating, he became hungry. You know, yeah, wow. It's, a, it's a hard to imagine. And uh, Satan's not dumb. If Jesus is hungry, where do you attack? You know, doesn't that make sense? So what does the devil suggest to Jesus? Make these stones into bread. Do you yeah. have something to eat? Yeah. He says, if you're the son of God, which seems to be saying, hey... God just said you were his son. Exploit it. I mean, if you're his son, shouldn't you be doing something to take care of yourself? Use your privileges. Now, does it sound that wrong if you had the power to turn stones to bread? What would be wrong with that? Did Jesus ever do anything sort of like that? Yeah, he fed the multitudes with uh, five sandwiches in one case and seven in another. And so, doesn't seem that bad. So what's wrong with this temptation? What would be wrong with Jesus doing this? When he did the other things, it was to help the people in order to bring glory to God. And when the people came back for food, Jesus said, you're just coming back for the food. You're not coming back because you love God. And so maybe this would be more for Jesus's personal glory. Oh, you did that. Oh, that's really cool rather than bringing glory to God. So how is Jesus going to use his miraculous powers? Is it going to be for his own personal satisfaction, kind of like an Aladdin's lamp, that he can get anything he wants whenever he wants it? You know, is he going to face temptation in the realm of his manhood? Or is he going to resort to the privileges of deity to deal with everything? Notice the, in the in the uh, passage he cites, man shall not live on bread alone. You know, he is going to face temptation in the realm of his manhood. And how is Jesus going to get his food? I mean, why is Jesus in the wilderness? The Spirit wanted him there. And why isn't hasn't he eaten? Looks here like there's no food. Yeah. You know, he's out there in the wilderness. Satan's basically saying, act independently. You know, do your own thing. So the question is, is he going to trust God? Or is he going to feed himself his own way? The question is, is he going to use his abilities for himself or to serve others? And so Jesus' answer is, it is written. Every time he said it's written. You know, now, what does that show you about how Jesus felt about the word? It actually had, it had practical application. I mean, it wasn't just, you know, like, here are these laws. It's, I can take this and apply it when something is going on in my life. Doesn't it show you more about Jesus and how he felt about the word when he actually uses it for himself to fight the temptation than when he just recommends it to other people? You can see that Jesus in his own life believed the word was the key to defeating Satan. And that's cool. 
Because we've got the scriptures just like Jesus did. You know, he doesn't he doesn't whip the devil by doing some miraculous stunt we couldn't do. He beats him by turning to the same resource we have, the word. And the passage he uses, man shall not live by bread alone. Anybody know where that was? Yes. I get a note that says Deuteronomy 8.3. Yeah, your note's right. Good note. And that is when Moses was talking to the Israelites in the wilderness about the manna and how God had taught them that they didn't live by bread alone, but they depended on the word of God for their food. And that's the situation here. You know, they had to learn in the wilderness to depend on God for their food. We have to learn in every situation to depend on God and not act independently and try to do things on our own. Does that make sense? So think about this. We already had kind of the contrast in chapter 3 between Jesus and Adam. They were both the son of God. You're my beloved son and Adam the son of God. But there's quite a difference between Adam and Jesus. For one thing, well, both of them faced a similar temptation, right? Would you agree? Adam and Jesus faced a similar temptation? What makes it similar? Fear eats it. Food. They faced a food temptation. But where was Adam when he faced it? Garden of Eden. Paradise. And where was Jesus? In the desolate wilderness. And Adam hadn't fasted at all. And what was Adam able to eat of? Any of the trees around. Except for that one. Anything else he could eat. And Jesus had nothing to eat and hadn't for 40 days. You know, Mark says that Jesus was with the wild beasts. Now, in Adam's day before the fall, how wild were the beasts? They were tamed to him. He, he was over all of them. They all submit to it. So, the, there's just so many contrasts that show you Jesus had it tougher, and yet he beat Satan. Adam had it way easier, and he gave in. So, I think that's interesting. It's also interesting to think about Jesus in Israel. You know, so... When, when Moses wrote Deuteronomy, where was Israel? On the east side of the promised land. But they were in the wilderness. wilderness. How long had they been there? 40 years. 40 years. Jesus been here 40 days. They're God's son. Jesus is God's son. Every citation of Jesus comes from Deuteronomy. And so Jesus wins when Israel fell, failed as well. Uh, so, think about applications from this temptation. <laughs> Where is Satan going to tempt us? Probably at our weakest point. Isn't that true? You know, he's going to probe our vulnerabilities. I mean, when does he tempt you to get angry and lose your temper? You're mad. When you're stressed, when you're tense, when you're irritable, when things haven't gone well. When does he tempt you to neglect spiritual things in your life? When you're distracted, when you're really busy, when you got a whole lot going on. When does he tempt you to lie? When you're in trouble. When you're in trouble? <laughs> when you're trying to impress somebody? Yeah, things like that. So, you know, Satan's going to attack our, weak, our weakest point. And think about it from his standpoint. He only needs us to sin in one area. You know... So, I mean, why not attack the weakest point? Get the sin in the, as easy as you can. And so that's kind of his mentality. Often, the temptation looks reasonable, like it did here. I mean, is it that, is that that ridiculous to want to eat? I mean, who made us beings that need to eat? That's the way God made our bodies. You know, you've got to take care of your necessities. I mean, you know, it's like the temptation looks really right. It's hard to even see it's wrong. And, and we certainly learn that we need to trust God and not be independent. You know, Jesus needed food, but there's one thing he needed more, and that is to do what the Father said. You know, it's always right to do right, always wrong to do wrong. So, you know, do you ever get in a situation where you feel like, man, in this situation, I just, I just need to sin. I mean, right here, it's just a must. I mean, I don't have any choice about it. i got to sin here. 
You ever felt that way? Maybe you didn't call it sin. <laughs> you know, but I got to do this. I may be wrong, but I, I just don't have any choice about it. Well, if anybody didn't have a choice, I'd say a guy must eat, right? You know, other than breathing, eating is about as important as anything else to the survival. You got to eat. But that doesn't excuse doing the wrong thing to get your food. You know, so you've got to always trust the Lord and not act independently. It'd be better to die of hunger than to disobey God. Thoughts and comments on that temptation? No matter how you dissect it, it still doesn't. It always it always seems like the answer is not answering directly the question. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> he's like, well, just turn these stones to bread, and he's instead of saying no or that would be a bad thing to do, it's like he's answering a question that wasn't asked. <laughs> but Jesus often does that. <laughs> Just answer the question. <laughs> Jesus goes a step beyond that. He deals with the concept and principle behind the question, which was act independently. Yet the answer refers to the bread, but that's not the question. Or that's not. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? Uh-huh. It's, man shall not live by bread alone. So on the surface, it's like, well, if he had told him to turn it into fish, that would have been okay. <laughs> yeah, but I think the point is bread, but food alone. Right, but you see how that is. But that's still not that's still not the problem. It's not it's not food in general. In fact, that's so he's not addressing necessarily the the food aspect as much as he is the temptation the, centered around food, but it wasn't about food. Yeah, and and the passage that he's talking about hasn't isn't really talking about food either. <laughs> yeah, it's way deeper than food. He's using the food in Deuteronomy to teach the lesson. You have to do what God says. You know, your life is not all about food or anything else. Your life is about following the Lord's will. Right, but ne- neither one of them are like a dietary plan. Right, right. that's right. <laughs> you can't live by bread alone, you know. Right, well. no, it's, uh, you have to have a few beans and rice as well. That's know? right. <laughs> you got, in other words, okay, you can't just turn this into bread. you got to have some, you know, vegetables. and. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. But the point is, God's <clears throat> word is what matters, not your food. Or not any, you know, physical thing. I mean, because in the wilderness, they learned to depend on God's word because that's how the manna got there. You know, their food came by God. It wasn't something they did themselves. So the lesson is you need God a lot more than you need stuff. God's the the source of what we need. So submit to the Lord and we'll have what we need. So I guess in a way, it's, it's, it almost seems like he doesn't really answer the question. He doesn't really ever give the, you know, it's kind of hidden in that. But he doesn't ever say, no, it would be wrong to serve myself with this, with this power. I need to serve, you know, serve God. Of course, he didn't really need to answer the question for Satan. <clears throat> He's giving the principle that's motivating his decision not to do that. He just doesn't do it. And he says, you know, it's written, man shall not live by bread alone. That's not, you're thinking that what matters most is eating I'm saying what matters most is doing what God says. All right, let's try the next one, five to eight. He led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory, where it has been handed over to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you worship before me, it shall be yours. And Jesus answered and said to him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Well, that's pretty cool. You know, he offers him everything, pretty much. You know, shows him all the kingdoms and says, I'll give that all over to you. You know, you can have everything. You know, I mean, that's like an awful lot of a high price to pay. You know, wow. And uh, 
Can you imagine like a commercial flashing across the screen and showing you the whole world and all the glitter and glamour and riches and, and saying, and this can be yours, you know, and what's the only thing he's got to do? There's only one small price to pay. Fall down and worship. Yeah, just worship me and you got it. Well, think about what the deeper issues were in that. How is Jesus going to become king? I mean, you know, was Jesus ever going to get, have the kingdoms of the world in, under his dominion? Yeah, he was. Isn't that what God promised? So why is Satan prom- Satan's promise tempting? A lot easier. A lot easier because... He's got to suffer. Satan's offering a shortcut, the crown without the cross. You know, bypass Calvary, go straight to glory. That sounds like a, you know, good deal. And, uh, you know, he can become great without God. Um, that That's quite a temptation. How is Jesus going to become king? And can you compromise for a good end? You know, wouldn't it be great if every, all the kings of the world and all his glory were submitting to Jesus? That sounds like a wonderful plan. Uh, but the kingdom's got to be pure. You know, if the kingdom isn't pure, then do, was it any really any blessing? I mean, it's like corrupting the church to make it more attractive to people so more people are saved. But once you corrupt it, then it doesn't, you know, doesn't help people be saved. You know, things like that. Um, so Jesus answers again with the scriptures. It's written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. It's not good to violate the scriptures. You know, it, Jesus ruled for evaluating everything. What does it say in the Bible? Does it say you can worship the devil? Then you don't do it. You worship God only. So think about the lessons in this one. If you've got a price, the devil will meet it. You know, I mean, how much would Satan be willing to pay to uh, buy your soul? Well, probably about whatever it takes. You know, would... You know, would you would you sell out for a hundred bucks? That probably arrange a hundred bucks for you. Would you sell out for a thousand? Ten thousand? You know, would you sell out for a kind of homely girl? Would you sell out for a fairly pretty one? You know, would it take a real knockout? You know, whatever. Again, Satan will provide what we what we want. What are we looking for? And so we've really got to resist him. And uh, you know, obviously Satan's willing to offer everything if he needs to. But for Jesus, there's no offer great enough to abandon the Father. Satan often offers shortcuts. You know, always, always be careful about the easier, painless way. You know, the way that the way that seems too good to be true. Eh, this instant, uh, instant spirituality. You know, instant glory, uh, and the devil will offer a compromise for good, and really test the depths of our purity. You know, I mean, there are times when it's tempting to do the wrong thing for a right thing. For a right reason. <laughs> you know, it's tempting to soft-pedal the gospel so more people will like it. It's ta- tempting to misuse a passage to make a good point. You ever done that? I know that passage isn't really saying that, but it sounds like it is, and it'll convince them. I've done that before. When I knew that's not really what it was saying, that's that's wrong. I mean, that's like, well, but, you know, it's, they, it's the truth. Well, but it's not right to twist a passage to even teach the truth. You know, or a lie that has a good reason, you know. I mean, this lie will really benefit people. Or it'll keep from hurting somebody. <clears throat> you know, again, it's never right to do wrong. Thoughts and comments on that temptation? At least he answers the question. Okay. <laughs> We're going to improve it. It seems surprising to me that these are tempting. Like... Especially because it is the devil right there talking to Jesus. Like, you know automatically that anything he says is not right. <laughs> you know? Like, our temptations don't come like that. <laughs> it just seems artificial. I don't know. Well, wow, do they not? I mean, think about how many times do we do something that we know is wrong? And we knew it when we did it. And we did it anyway. We've done that before. Probably more often than we care to admit. You know, I knew at the time I'm not doing the right thing. Or I knew at the time I I should be doing something and I didn't do it. I rebelled because I didn't want to do it. I mean, I don't... 
where do we think temptations come from? Don't we realize they come from Satan? So I think in a way, you know, we don't, it's like, why would we give in? I mean, because sometimes we give in when we really, we knew them well. We tried to block it out of our mind. We tried to convince ourselves, but we knew deep down it wasn't right. I don't know. Other thoughts? <clears throat> All right, 9 to 13. Then he brought him to Jerusalem, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you to keep you, and into their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered and said to him, It has been said, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Now when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Well, this is different. What does the devil do different in this temptation that seems pretty sharp? He uses scripture. He sees that Jesus likes uh, using the scripture, so he decides to try one of his own. You know, he'll just back up his temptation with scripture. Psalm 91. You know, just throw yourself down and the angels will get you. That's what the scriptures teach. <clears throat> and again, you know, I mean, that little temptation, yeah, you know, we knew that was wrong. But what's wrong with this one? That's what Psalm 91 says. Angels will get you. What's wrong with just throwing yourself down and letting them? It's a prophecy. He practically has to. to fulfill it. That's right. <laughs> Man, it's what it says. Do it. You like the scriptures so much. So what's wrong with it? Kind of difficult. And I think of, of like if one of us were up there, it would be like, okay, I'm going to commit suicide and hope that God catches me. No, well, the but scripture says. But there's yeah, and it's like right. <laughs> it, it seems like a foolish thing to do. There, there's no there's no benefit to it. Yeah. Does it have to do with the power display again and how it's displayed? Maybe. I mean, in a way, yes. You know, Jesus has been saying he's trusting in God. It's almost like Satan saying, let's test out the system. You know, go for it. Yeah. And, and and if God promises to protect me in danger, does that give me the right to create the danger? See if he'll protect me? I think that's the deeper issues in this, as far as I can see. And so Jesus comes back with, you shall not put the Lord of God, God to, your te- to the test. I mean, you don't have to test God's word to believe in it. You know, well, I'm going to see if he'll do it. I'll jump and, well, I'll let the angels grab me. You know, that's not the trusting heart of Psalm 91. Think about this, of some lessons in this that may help us see the point more. You know, can Satan quote the Bible? He must know the Bible. So, should we believe anybody who comes along and quotes the Bible? Do false teachers ever quote the Bible? They just don't quote very much of it, right? Well, there's some false teachers that use the Bible all the time. Now, what was wrong with this? Well, first of all, he didn't take all the scriptures. You know, no scripture can be forced to contradict another one. He needed to see this in the light of the scriptures that you don't test God. Um... He took it out of context. You know what Psalm 91 is talking about? A man who trusts in God and relies on God, not the man who feels like he has to put God to the test. you got to study it in context, and he takes a figurative passage literally. I don't think Psalm 91 ever was saying you're supposed to throw yourself off of a high point just to see if the angels will come and get you. The point is God's going to take care of you. But these are the problems people have today with their interpretation of Scripture, not taking it all taking it out of context, taking a figurative passage literally. It's a lot of what, what, you know, the errors we have. So we can't just immediately trust some guy, oh, he uses the Bible. You know, man, he, uses, he knows the Bible from A to Z. You know, he's got the Bible all through that. Well, is he, is he doing it right? Also think about this lesson, the devil's versatile. 
You know, if Jesus wins in one place, devil attack him in another. Don't don't get overconfident just because you whipped him on one side. And uh, trust doesn't test. You know, we never do, trust doesn't demand more proof. You know, trust doesn't put conditions on serving God. Things like that. Thoughts and comments. So Jesus' response here is answering the specific temptation. Like, I'm not going to do this because that would be testing God. That's right. Like, I used to see it as just kind of like, you shouldn't test God, so you should stop tempting No, no, I think you shouldn't test God by jumping off. Yeah. That is not very clear when you're hearing this as a little kid, which is, right. I think, what I thought, too. <laughs> Stop tempting me. You shouldn't tempt the Lord your God. Right. Yeah, yeah. There would be a temptation if Jesus did this. <laughs> right, right. I can see that, though. Well, and this is an appeal to Jesus' pride, too, that, you know, prove me, prove me wrong that you're not the Son of God. Um, that's obviously not the right heart. Yeah. I feel like these are kind of subtle. Like maybe Yeah, I do too. Um like maybe he knew he wouldn't get with the easy ones, like, you know, money yeah. and pretty girls or whatever, so he gave him some more uh more difficult ones. That may be why we don't completely understand them because maybe some of us fall into the easy ones too <coughs> quickly and we never even get to <laughs> temptations like this. Maybe We're stuck in Temptation 101, yeah. not the, the graduate level, you know, <laughs> 505 here. Yeah, we're just given to pride or telling a lie. We never, you know. <laughs> well, I mean, isn't that the way the devil is? I mean, doesn't he like to be subtle with temptation on some occasions and make it look good? I mean, you know, I said sometimes we go into temptation with our eyes open. But there are some people who are really pretty conscientious, and they don't very often do something that they know is wrong. What's it going to take to get to them? Make it look like it's right. Devil loves to masquerade in a wolf in sheep's clothing kind of thing. So we've really got to stop and think. And you know, it's awful hard to evaluate a temptation well when we really want to do the thing that's wrong. You know, it's, it's so easy to rationalize. It's so easy to believe the devil's lies. You know, I don't think that's so bad. You know, that sounds pretty good to me. I, I can see that. You could have done that with any one of these. You can come up with reasons why you ought to give in to that. Now, I like to do this. What were the principles of Jesus overcoming these temptations? I think there were three. Trust in God. In all of these, he demonstrated his huge have to rely and trust in the Lord. Our faith is the victory that overcomes the world, First John 5, 4. And we need to put on the shield of faith by which we're able to dist- extinguish most of the fiery darts of the evil one. That's all the fiery darts of the evil one. And the faith will give you the strength. Second, he had the word. And of course, the word in us is what to overcome Satan. We've got to let the word richly dwell within us. How are you going to fight off the Satan if you don't know the word? I mean, he knew the, the exact words. You know, words out of the middle of Deuteronomy. How many words out of the middle of Deuteronomy do we know? Um, and <laughs> resist the devil. You know, Jesus never did what he knew wasn't right. Think about how much different your life would be right now if you'd never, ever done what you knew wasn't right. From here on out, that's the principle to defeat the devil. Trust, having his word in us, and resisting Satan. Don't do what you know is not right. Thoughts and comments? So are these supposed to cover all general aspects of sin? You know, I've often heard that. It's like, oh, you know, like the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life and that type of thing. Well, I mean... I don't know. I mean, they, they probably deal with some fundamental concepts, but there's certainly more temptations than just these things. So I don't know. If, I don't know if they're intended to be some kind of a categorized grouping, but I, I, they deal with with you know deep things to think about and consider in temptation. That's for sure. And is it? Do you think? I mean. <laughs> 
I don't know how to, how to view this either. It was, you know, Jesus out there for 40 days, and then the devil shows up and says, okay, here are your three options. <laughs> uh, or is it more like the way the American Standard reads, he was in the desert wilderness for 40 days being tempted. So, or or would that be one and the same? In other words, continually kind of wearing him down, you know, Satan behind that in some way, or is this even literal at all? You know, this the actual encounter. <clears throat> well, yeah. Well, well. I mean, I'm not assuming that these are the only things Satan did tempt Jesus. These may have been the climactic temptations, or you know, representative temptations. I mean, I'm assuming it really happened. Now. Some of the details, like when he took him up to a high mountain, I'm assuming he might have been able to do that in his mind, you know, I mean, Jesus could be, so I don't know if he literally went up there or whatever, but, but I'm assuming that, yeah, there's a, a confrontation, I, mean, I don't know that the devil appeared in a pitchfork in a red suit or something, but I think, you know, I mean, the devil do, does tempt us, it's not, you know, we don't see him physically, but, I mean, temptation is, by, by the devil, he's the roaring lion trying to devour us. So, you know, I mean, it'd probably help us if we thought about that more. I mean, think about the things you give into in sin. If you just immediately thought when you were tempted, Satan is trying to get me to give in. You've got to get riled up about that. You better stop that. I'm not going to give in to this to Satan. He just hates me. He hates God, too. How would Luke, as he's like researching and trying to write this, find out about these details in particular? I'm assuming Jesus told somebody about it because nobody else appears to be there. It, it, good question. I don't have the total answer to that, obviously. I Matthew knew about it. Mm-hmm. Now, maybe the Holy Spirit just directly told him about it. Mm-hmm. The Holy Spirit uh, was there, so... Okay. Right, yeah, that's right. Um, Excuse me, Mr. Holy Spirit, I have a few so, more questions about the temptation. I mean, Luke out. may very well have used Matthew and other sources to know about it, you right. know. Uh, but I think, bottom line, I don't know if we ever really know. And I do believe the Holy Spirit superintended Luke's work. I don't know if there's anything that he directly got that he didn't know about from some other source. I don't know. Good question. Well, how about 14 and 15? And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through all the surrounding district. And he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. Now, this is typical of Luke, kind of a summary of Jesus' work. You know, he'll have several of these summary passages, both, both in Luke and Acts. Uh, he likes to do that. So, here's what Jesus is doing. He comes back to Galilee, he has the Spirit with him, the news spreads, and he's teaching in their synagogues, and everybody's praising him. Um, and you might look at verse 44, so he kept on preaching the synagogues of Judea. So it looks to me like 14 and 15 and 44 kind of, you know, bookend this section. This is going to tell about, you know, what he's doing as he's, uh, you know, teaching in the synagogues and so forth. Um, there are a number of points here in the early Luke where you see Jesus' uh, fame spreading, I mean, here he's praised by all in verse 15. Look at verse 37. And the report about him was spreading into every locality in the surrounding district. Then look at 515. The news about him was spreading even farther, and large crowds were gathering to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. Then look at 717. This report concerning him went out over all Judea and in all the surrounding district. You know, you just constantly see. This news is spreading, people are amazed, more people are hearing, finding out, and so forth. And again, notice the emphasis in the, on the Spirit. You know, we had the Spirit coming on Jesus in his baptism. He was full of the Holy Spirit and led by the Spirit in 4.1. And now he's uh, returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. Clearly, the Spirit is heavily involved in what Jesus is doing. All right, thoughts and comments? All right, um, let's see what I want to do here. 16. Um, 
Let's do sixteen to twenty-two. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book and found the place where it is, it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, Is this not Joseph's son? Okay, where is Jesus? Nazareth. Uh, where in Nazareth? Synagogue. Yeah. So this is where he grew up. Back in Nazareth, synagogue. Uh, and this is this is kind of the first major incident Luke records in his ministry. We're not in chronological order here, but I think Luke wants us to see this almost as a mini sample of what ultimately will happen to Jesus. So um, he goes in and he's given a chance to, to preach. What scroll does he read from? Isaiah. The Isaiah scroll. Reads from Isaiah 61, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, literally, for he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor he sent me, to proclaim for the captives released, to the blind sight, to send forth the oppressed and released, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's kind of the literal translation. Will emphasis on me. You know, Spirit's on me, anointed me, sent me. Um, there's real idea. There's real idea of almost like a jubilee year, like the release of the captives, liberation for the poor and the prisoners, and so forth. Um, and so that's that. That's a passage that's dealing with the Messiah from Isaiah 61. And what does Jesus say about this passage? Today it's fulfilled. This is me. <laughs> You know, this, this passage is being fulfilled in your ears. And the people are like, whoa. I mean, at first, what's their reaction? They're marvelous. They're impressed. It's positive. Wow. Here Jesus comes from Nazareth. Look. One of our homegrown boys in this Joseph's son. Look at him. Listen to how he's talking. Wow. Man. You can imagine what's going to happen in Nazareth. With a famous man like this, a great speaking man like this, he can do wonders for us. They've heard about those miracles, too. Wow. I mean, we'll make a Nazareth healing center and, you know, whatever, and Jesus will be, you know, he'll put Nazareth on the map. Nazareth, hometown of Jesus the healer. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. And uh, so they're just, they're wow. This is the one gracious words are falling from his lips. You know, that's kind of a funny way to put it, but uh, that's what they say. All right, so questions or comments through verse 22. Was it a tradition then um, to read? Did he have a choice of what he would read, or was it sort of like a, there was a set schedule, so to speak? It looks to me like he found the passage and read what he wanted to. That's what it looks to me like. I don't know that we know for sure, but I think that's the case. 23 to 27. He said to them, No doubt you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. He said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. But I say to you, in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a great famine came over all the land. And yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. So Jesus says, you're thinking, 
I need to do special stuff since you're my hometown. And, well, he says, no prophet's welcome in his own hometown. You know, nobody, nobody really respects you where you grew up. And, uh, so he's not expecting them to either, because what they want is to monopolize on Jesus. We'll make him exhibit A of, uh, he's a product of Nazareth schools, you know, he's grown up with Nazareth culture, you know, here, here's, here's the kind of person we produce in the, in the Nazareth environment. That's not what he's gonna do, and he, so he points out, there were lots of widows in Israel in Elijah's day. Where did God send him? One. Yeah, up to a Sidonian widow. And she's the one that got fed. There were a lot of lepers in Israel in time of Elisha. And who did he heal? Naaman the Syrian. No geographical claims coerce God's grace. You know, two of Israel's greatest prophets did their biggest works for pagans, for, for Gentiles. Don't you think that I'm obligated in a special way to put Nazareth on the map? You know, and, well, so, he's not going to favor Nazareth. He's not necessarily going to favor Israel. He's more or less compared them just now to widows and lepers. You know, <laughs> needy and unclean. Um, they sure did change their tune in a hurry, we will see. Once Jesus preaches this part of the sermon, they don't find his words so gracious that are falling from his lips. You know, some people are initially attracted because the gospel is cool. Then they start listening to it a little closer and they're repelled because it really, you know, gets under your skin and steps on your toes. Thoughts and comments? Any particular reason for Elijah and Elisha other than... They make really good examples here, and everybody knew them. Yeah, I think that's good. <laughs> it's not. I don't think it's relevant here, but Elijah is kind of the foreshadowing of John the Baptist, and Elisha the foreshadowing of Jesus. But. All right, twenty-eight to thirty. See what happens. So all those in the synagogue, when they had heard these things, were filled with wrath, and rose up and thrust him out of the city, and they led him to the brow of the hill on which their city was built, so that they might throw him down over the cliff. He went through their midst, and he went on his way. Well, that's not too nice. You know, they didn't want to be mentioned in the same breath with Syrians and Sidonians. They're filled with rage, and... Uh, so, it's kind of interesting. This, uh, um, you know, this, this section started in verse 16 with Jesus standing up to read. In verse 29, they get up and drive him out of the city. So, you know, starts with Jesus standing up, ends with them standing up. But what did they try to do? Throw off the cliff. Whoa, that's not nice. <laughs> What would they want to do that for? Apparently they didn't believe Psalm 91 would come into play. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't think the angel would bear him up. I thought about that, but you're right. That is really wild for a group of religious people to suddenly do on a whim. <laughs> well, you're more likely to do it on a whim than if you think about it. <laughs> I mean, if you're going to kill somebody, you'd be more likely to do it on impulse than after you thought it over, right? Don't worry. Watch Mindy's impulses there. Right? <laughs> uh, you know, he's gonna, they're going to lynch him. And they're just infuriated. Boy, they were so excited. Man, hometown boy makes good. And Jesus insults them by comparing them to Gentile widows and lepers and implying that he's not going to give any special... <laughs> It's haunted around here. <laughs> there are worse things than that happen once in a while. You'll hear the telephone ring around here. But, uh, you know, anyhow, whatever I was saying. <laughs> you know, the Jews don't have exclusive privileges, and they're just insulted. They, they are just, uh, they're very hurt that Jesus is disrespecting them like this. And they're just, they're just enraged and ready to just throw him off the cliff. And, uh, what happens to Jesus? 
How did that happen? <laughs> <laughs> He's got mist in all the commotion. <laughs> <laughs> Here's someone else off the cliff. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it says he passed through their mist and went on his way. Excuse me, excuse me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the invisibility cloak from the <laughs> Maybe so, yeah. Maybe that's what it was. You know, I mean, look, that's really explained. He's content to let us wonder about it. So I wonder about it, but I don't know about it. Um, you know, think about some lessons from this. You know, again, look at verse uh, 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. We just can't get away from the Spirit in Jesus' work. And I think we clearly need to think more about the role of the Spirit in Jesus and in us. There's a lot more focus on the Spirit in the Bible than what we get, especially in the New Testament. Another thing is I think we need to be more global in our outlook. We sometimes are about like Nazareth. You know, we want our preachers to stay home and help us, you know, and we're like, well, there's no use taking the gospel on anybody else until everybody in this little city gets, you know, converted, you know, and whatever. You know, we want all the strong Christians to stay with us and build us up and, you know, make us feel good. And, you know, we just kind of have this, everybody ought to draw in, you know, whereas the Lord didn't feel that way. He needed to go out. And a third lesson, you know, we need to quit thinking we've failed because there's a negative reaction. I mean, wow, this is about the negativest reaction you can get to a sermon. You know, you worry maybe some people won't like what you preached. Wow, this was like major not liking what you preached. And what, how would you feel? If, if, if you preached something, people said, came up and said, I do not like that. That was not, that really hurt me. I don't appreciate you talking like that. What would you immediately feel? I'm nailed it. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. <laughs> what would the rest of you feel? <laughs> at, at the smallest, you'd be upset about that. Whether, I mean, you would perhaps begin to think back over what you said. Now, did I say something wrong that I didn't mean? To, did they hear something I didn't say? And begin to question everything you said and wonder, wait, should I be doing saying that? Feel, you feel guilty. You, know, you feel like you did do something wrong. Yeah. And, and that, how people react does not prove whether you did right or wrong. If people like it, doesn't prove it was right. If people don't like it, doesn't prove it's wrong. We need to quit basing our evaluation, what we do, on whether people like it or not. There's lots of things people don't like, but it's the right thing. Lots of people think people do like that or the wrong thing. If we're trying to make people like us, and we're worried because they, well, they didn't like it, they got upset about it, well, that may or may not be, you know, the right thing. But you appreciate the fact Jesus and the apostles were willing to upset people and they didn't back away from them. Well, he stirred this up in them. Like, he yeah. invited them to do this. Well, I mean, they could have they could have respected what he said. Right, right. But he just... <clears throat> Told him like it was. Yeah, he did. It was their hearts that determined how they exactly. responded to it. Exactly. <clears throat> yeah. What so, what was the purpose of this? Why, why go to Nazareth and do this? Well, he went everywhere and preached. Um, so I would say, I mean, Nazareth is a place. I think Luke puts it here because this is just kind of a foreshadowing of what's to come. But I mean, I don't think Jesus would shy away from a place because he knew he'd have a bad reaction. You preach anywhere. You know, I mean... But it was more than... I, I guess, you know, there's obviously something to it, but it was more than just preaching. You know, he dealt with them specifically because of where they were. It, it, it almost appears like that wasn't necessary. You know, preach it. But instead, he went ahead and kind of got it out in the open from the very beginning. Unprompted or... Jesus deals with different people different ways. And is it not based upon what's in their heart and what they're like? Why did Jesus come to Nicodemus first dash out of the box? You know, you got to start all over again. You can't even see the kingdom. Like, well, you know, maybe you could be a little more tactful or, you know, slower to get to that point. Or, you know, you're worthless right now, Nicodemus, you know. you got to start all over again. 
And I mean, I think Jesus knows what's in people's minds and hearts. And I think he understood that people of Nazareth were smug and self-righteous and proud, and they wanted to display him as a trophy. And they needed to know right here and now. He's not their favorite son. Became their least favorite son right off, right off the bat. That's my take. I don't know. Other thoughts? I mean, could he have gone there specifically? This was where he grew up. He presumably had some close ties to some of those people, and he wanted to give, make sure that they had a shot mm. and uh, at everything that he was offering. And they turned it down, and he knew that, but still that, that kind of like, you have to, that's the one place... You have to try with your family, even though you're like 99.9% sure it's not going to be fruitful. You still have to try that one. And from the other Gospels, this probably wasn't the first place he went. This is in Luke's presentation, kind of showing this. It's kind of like, ugh. Now you see what Jesus is up to. He even says, it's almost like this has already become his habit. Yeah. Going right. to the synagogue. Right, so. right. Yeah, good point. Of course, he, he had said that in verse 15. But Nazareth wasn't very big, was it? No. I mean, we don't think so. Nazareth, Nazareth just didn't mention hardly mm-hmm. anything. I wonder how many synagogues there actually were. Probably one. So it would have been most of the, at least a representation of most of the city. I would think so. What about his own family? You would assume that... Surely they didn't try to throw him off a cliff. <laughs> we hope. <laughs> well, they tried to come and get him one other time. Well, I know, but not to throw him off the cliff. <laughs> They tried, they tried to keep him protected, but I don't think they tried to hurt him. But, yeah, I don't know. It reminds me of the rich young ruler. Like, Jesus was just very directly said, this is your biggest obstacle. Um, he seems to be kind of what he's doing here. And if they overcome that, then they'll probably do well. Um, but, you know, he doesn't you know, praise them for what they do well and then challenge them and then praise them. Like, you know, he just kind of gets straight to it. <laughs> That's a good point because the rich young ruler wouldn't have done much good. He could have taught him everything else and until he got rid of the one thing, none of that, nothing else would have made any, made any difference. Right, yeah. I mean, sometimes you just need to deal with the problem. <laughs> Most of the time. <laughs> yeah. yeah, really. It's true. I think sometimes it takes us a little longer than Jesus to know exactly what the problem is. So right. we may not be able to come in quite like this. No, did Jesus in every situation. There were times when Jesus was, you know, more tender when he realized people were tender-hearted. All right, well, why don't we stop here? And I think I can be here next week, but if not, I'll let you know. Go to Iowa sometime.